0: Aren't you glad that he is for us? Yes. Amen. Father, thank you that you're for us. Thank you that you are a great God who's offered a great plan of salvation and that uh, we have seen you working in our lives and we pray we'll see you again this morning. So God, I pray as I speak these words that they'd be the words that uh, you want people to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Imagine that you were the owner of a startup company. What kind of people would you be looking for? You'd probably be looking for people with pretty impressive resumes. You'd want people who were optimistic. You'd want people who were respected by those around them. You'd want people who believed wholeheartedly in what you were doing. Not Jesus. He chose as his disciples the pessimist, the betrayer, the doubter, the outcast of society, and the reasonable, cautious one among others. These disciples were not chosen for their natural ability or their natural intellect. These were guys that were prone to mistakes, misstatements, and wrong attitudes. Jesus even remarked in Luke 24, 25 that they were slow learners and somewhat spiritually dense. But Jesus used them. When he chose his 12 disciples, none of them had graduated from seminary. He didn't choose any rabbis. He didn't choose any scribes. He didn't choose any priests. He chose everyday, garden-variety, ordinary people just like you and me. Ordinary people who accomplished extraordinary things. In our new series, Extraordinary, we'll be taking a deep dive into the lives of some people. People who maybe we don't know much about. People sort of like you and me just ordinary people. When we think of the 12 men who followed Jesus closely and 11 of them who eventually became apostles, there are some names that usually come to our mind. We think of names like Peter and James and John and Andrew. In fact, those are the names that are listed first in all four of the Gospels. When we think of Peter, for instance, we think of one who was very impulsive and often spoke before thinking. Remember when Jesus was taking the form of a servant and he's washing their feet and he gets to Peter and Peter goes, no, 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 God, don't wash my feet. That's, that's not your role. And Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part in me. Peter, okay, okay, then give me a bath. Wash all of me, Lord. Peter was just very impulsive. He said the first thing that came to his mind, Being impulsive is something that we see of him in all four of the Gospels, especially when Jesus tells his disciples that they will all fall away from him. And once again, Peter goes, not me. These other guys might leave you, but I won't leave you. I will be there, Lord. I'll be right by your side the whole time. And Jesus goes, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times and the impulsive one does. We also know a lot about Peter because he wrote two books in the New Testament, First and Second Peter. And of course, we read a lot about him in the book of Acts. We know a lot about another disciple named John. He wrote the Gospel of John, and he told us that he was the one that Jesus loved. Now, Jesus loved all of them, but John tells us he had a special relationship with Jesus. John wasn't bragging, he was simply stating a fact. Think of yourself, you probably have a couple best friends. You're just really close with them. I remember years ago, there was a guy named Ernest, and Ernest would say, my friend and I are close. We're tighter than stressed duct tape. That's how close we are. Well, that's pretty tight, but we all have best friends. And then we have people who are our close friends. And they're not our best friend, but they're close friends. And then we have people that are our friends. So it's not unusual that, that uh, John and Jesus would have this kind of relationship. John was the apostle of love. We also know more about John because while Peter wrote two books of the Bible— John wrote five books of the Bible. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he even penned the book of Revelation. And in the book, we read about how John banished, how John was banished to the island of Patmos where he wrote that book. And just as we read about Peter in the book of Acts, we also read a lot about John. We observe in the epistles how he dealt with the church. And we also know that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looked down and saw his mother Mary standing there and John next to her. And he said, John, take care of my mom for me because he knew John was the, gospel, was the disciple of love. So we know a lot about some of the disciples, but there are ones that we don't know much about. And one of them is Philip that we're going to look at this morning. We have four lists of the 12 apostles in the New Testament. And in every one of the gospels, the fifth name on the list is always Philip. Philip's name is a Greek name, which means lover of horses. I'm also a lover of horses. So I think Philip and I would have got along pretty well. In fact, I was telling somebody just the other day what I was gonna be speaking on. I said, I'm gonna talk about Philip, and he's a lover of horses. I said, Phil rode his motorcycle into the worship center last week. Do you think maybe I should ride a horse in here? And my friend wisely said, "Uh, don't think you should. That horse might, well, he might make some unwanted deposits as he makes his way in. Some people confuse Philip, the disciple, with Philip, the deacon and evangelist. Remember that Philip? He was the one that led the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord. Two different guys, Philip the disciple, Philip the evangelist. They're not the same. So let's see what we can learn about this Philip, the apostle. We first meet Philip in John 1, after Jesus had called Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Look at John 1.43 on the screen. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And Philip did. How do we know that? Well, look at verses 45 and 46. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. So what do we learn from Philip in just that brief section there that we can apply to our own life? I think what Philip showed us was don't let it go to voicemail and ignore it, but answer God's call. If you're like me, if you get a call and you look at your phone and you don't recognize the caller ID, you just let it go to voicemail. And then later I will check my voicemail and if there's nothing there, I know it was probably a spam call and I just delete it. So if you know me and you ever opt to call me and don't leave a voicemail, well, you know what happens. But if you get a call from someone you know, and you you really want to talk to that person, but it's not a convenient time, you let it go to voicemail and listen to it later. So don't let it go to voicemail, but answer God's call. Philip did that. He did it immediately immediately. The other thing he did, he also told his friend about Jesus. When's the last time you told a friend about Jesus? One commentator said this about Philip telling his friend about Jesus. I'm convinced that friendships provide the most fertile soil for evangelism. When the reality of Christ is introduced into a relationship of love and trust that's already been established, the effect is powerful. If you've got a friend, they trust you. They believe in you. Share Jesus with them. If Peter was impulsive and John was the apostle of love, then how would we describe Philip? Well, let's find out. Remember the familiar scene in the scriptures where Jesus feeds the 5,000? Let's look at that scene again to see what we can learn about Philip. Philip. Look at John chapter six, beginning at verse one. After Jesus went away to the other side of Galilee, which is the sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes and seeing there was a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So here's Philip. He's looking over the crowd. He's assessing how many people were there. Says 5,000, but there were probably more because... In Matthew 14, 21, Matthew says, and those who ate were about 5,000 beside women and children. So Philip's looking at the crowd and he's probably been watching them as they gathered. And maybe he was sort of calculating in his mind how many people were there. A denarii was in those days wages for a common laborer. So Philip answered Jesus and said, if we had enough money from a guy's pay for forty weeks, we couldn't even buy them enough to have one Chick Fil A nugget each. In Matthew eight, Philip saw Jesus heal Peter's mother-in-law. Let's talk about what he had seen. He's saying to Jesus, "There's, there's not enough. We don't have enough money. We can't feed these people." But he had seen Jesus perform miracles, and he saw. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And you remember the story. Jesus walked in and touched her, and she was healed. Don't you love that about Jesus? There were times he didn't even have to speak. He just touched her, and she was healed. She jumped up out of bed, went out in the kitchen, and made them something to eat. In Mark 4, when all the disciples were on the boat with Jesus, Philip saw Jesus calm a storm. I've always thought that it's pretty significant that most of these disciples were apostles, not all, or were, were fishermen, not all of them, but some of them. And they're out on a, you know, in the boat, and a storm comes up, and they're scared. These guys had seen storms before, so it had to be a massive storm that was scaring them. And Jesus, I love this part too, he's sleeping. So the disciples came over and woke him up, Jesus stood up and said, Peace be still, and the waters calm. So Philip had seen Jesus raise Peter's mother-in-law from the dead, or from, from sickness, I'm sorry, and he had seen Jesus calm the storm. And then in Luke 7, he saw Jesus raise a widow's son from the dead. So he had seen all of that. He'd seen those miracles, and now he is, he's standing here wondering, How are we going to feed all these people? We could be really critical of him. But let me ask you, how many times have you seen God work in your life to answer prayers that you had? And the older you are and the longer you've been a believer, I'm seeing some nods, the more you've seen that, right? And then something comes into your life that's unusual, it's unexpected, that's scary. And what do you do? Well, I don't know how God's going to solve this one. So, Philip, guess what, was just like us. Or we, I should say, are just like him. Philip, the reasonable one, he knew Jesus could perform miracles. Why didn't he say, Jesus, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I've seen you perform miracles before. I mean, feeding all these people is a piece of cake for you, or maybe a piece of fish. If Jesus already knew what he was going to do, He's God. He knows what we're thinking at any time. He knows how we're going to respond to a situation. He knew Philip. He knew what thoughts were going through his mind. So when he asked Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? Scriptures say he asked him to test him. Jesus, already knowing what he was going to do, I wonder why he didn't say, Guys, just stand back. I wonder why he didn't even ask Philip. He looked at the people. He knew they needed to be fed. Why didn't he just perform the miracle then? Well, Scripture tells us why. Look again at verse 6. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus (laughs) knew that Philip was uh, maybe a little too reasonable sometimes, a little too pessimistic, a little too analytical. And you know what? Sometimes even wise men can be too reasonable. Leslie Flynn says this about Philip. Philip knew too much arithmetic to be adventurous. Philip learned something that day about his own uncreative earthliness, but he also learned about, about God. The scriptures tell us that nothing is impossible with God. What's impossible with God? Nothing, right? Nothing. Some of you might be thinking, come on, Carl, you got to be reasonable sometimes. It's good to be reasonable. You know what? You're right, sometimes. <laughs> but sometimes we have to exercise our faith and trust God. Others of you may be thinking, come on now, Philip was just being reasonable. I mean, over 5,000 people, and you only have five loaves of bread and two fish. I can understand why he'd think that. Be reasonable. So let me ask you what a certain lead pastor that we know uh, His initials are Phil Byers. He's not afraid to take risks. Maybe you've noticed that. He might ask you, is Jesus looking for reasonableness or is he looking for faith? How reasonable was it when God told Moses to take his rod and touch it in the water and the Red Sea would part? Moses is leading the Israelites The Egyptian army is chasing them. He looks behind him, and he sees all these chariots of the Egyptian army coming down. He looks in front of him, and he sees the Red Sea. And God's saying, just touch your staff to the water, and the water will part. Now, come on. How reasonable is that? That doesn't make any sense at all. Um, How reasonable was it when God told joshua how to deal with the city of jericho god said joshua got a plan for you got some things i want you to do joshua said wait a minute let let me get my legal pad okay i'm ready joshua i want you to have all the people march around the city every day for six days okay just a second march around city every day for six got it okay And then on the seventh day, on the seventh day, I want you to march around the city seven times. Okay, just a minute. March around the city seven times. Okay, what's next, God? And then I want you to blow the trumpet seven times. Blow the trumpet seven times. And then, Joshua, the walls of Jericho are gonna come crashing down. The walls of Jericho, what? God, that's not even reasonable. So what if Moses... And what if Joshua had been reasonable people? What if they were more reasonable than they were trusting God? How about Elijah calling down fire from heaven? You know the story. He's with Ahab, and they've got their prophets of Baal there, and Elijah does this challenge to him, and Says to the prophets of Baal, call down fire from or call fire down from your God and destroy this, burn up this, this uh, sacrifice. And they try it and they try it and they can't do it, and they're cutting themselves and they're freaking out. And Elijah comes up and says, Okay, now let me show you what God can do. First of all, we're gonna pour seven jars of water over all the wood and all the meat, and then I'm gonna call down fire. Well, if you've ever done any camping or you've got a, maybe a fire pit at your house, you do not put the wood in there and then douse it with water first and then light it. That's not reasonable, right? Well, what did Elijah do? He prayed to his God because he had faith in God. And what did God do? He brought the fire down. And I love what the scripture says. In 1 Kings 17, it says he burned up The sacrifice, he burned up the stones, he burned up everything. Because when God does stuff, he does it all the way. So I ask you again, is God looking for reasonableness or faith? The second point on your handout is, trust me, God will always test your faith. How often will he test your face? Always. Now, I have this little illustration that I use. That sometimes I say God taps me on the shoulder. Not literally, but figuratively. He taps me on the shoulder and he goes, "Uh, excuse me. Yes, Lord. Do you really believe all this stuff you've been teaching all these years? Oh, yeah, I really do, God. And God folds his arms and goes, you know what? Let's just check, let's just check. I could tell you story after story after story of God testing my faith. I wanna tell you just one. Our daughter, Melissa, was a junior in high school, public school, and uh, snow camp was coming up with the youth group, and we wanted her to go so bad, but. Sometimes you realize this is not the time to push. So we just prayed instead of pushing. There's a message there too, right? Pray instead of push. And she came to us. My wife, Lori, talked to two teenage girls. And she said, Jennifer and Chantel, I think Melissa might go to snow camp if you just personally ask her. And those sweet girls ask her. And she said to us, you know, Mom and Dad, I think I'm going to go to snow camp. And we're like, oh, yes. So the following Sunday, I went into the office and paid the registration. And about a week later, Melissa said, I don't think I want to go to snow camp. And I said, Melissa, we've already paid, and I know they won't give us our money back. They would have. (laughs) So she went to snow camp halfway through her junior year, and she made a decision to trust Christ. And that changed everything. And when she came home from snow camp and told us about that, she said, I know I'm not strong enough to stay at the public school. I think I need to go to ECA. It was called EBCS back then. And we wanted to cheer, but, you know, you got to be cool. So, said, oh, really? Okay, well, that'd be fine. Now, we already had two kids at the Christian school, and we didn't have a whole lot of money, and we weren't sure how we were going to provide for her tuition, but... God blessed us, and we made it. And then Melissa said she wanted to go to Liberty University. Well, now talk about money. You know, there's more money for tuition there. But we were trusting God that he's going to take care of it. So we packed our minivan completely full. My friend Devon Stricker told me at the time, when you take your kid to college the first year, your car or your van is packed full. When you take them the second year, you put a car top carrier on it. When you take it the third year, you're probably going to pull a trailer. And the fourth year, you just might need to rent a semi. So our minivan is packed full, and we're looking at how much money we have to make this trip to Lynchburg, Virginia. And we had just enough to get out there and back. Key phrase, just enough. Just enough. We're driving along the Ohio Turnpike, making our way out there, and all of a sudden, the back end of the minivan is swaying back and forth. And I pulled over to the side and Lori said, what's the matter? I said, we got a flat tire. I got out, walked to the back of the van. The right rear tire is not just flat. Folks, it is destroyed because by the time we pulled off, there's no air in it and the rim was chewing it up. And I'm going, oh boy. And I'm having a little conversation with God, not out loud, but just a conversation saying, God, how could you do this? You know, we don't have a whole lot of money. Now I'm going to have to buy a tire and get it mounted and all of that. So we put the little donut spare on, and I said to Lori, "We, we can't drive very far on this. Let's get off of the next exit. Well, the next exit was one of those where There's no billboards. There's no restaurant. There are no gas stations at all, but a sign that said the name of the town, five miles. So, well, we'll drive five miles into the town. So we're driving for a couple miles, and we drove by a a farm, and there's a wagon, a hay wagon out in front, just full of tires, whole stack of tires. And I pulled into the guy's driveway and thought to myself there won't be a tire here that'll fit. These are tires from his truck and his wagons and all that, but I walked up there anyway. This farmer came walking out of his barn, his bib overalls, got his thumbs like this, and he goes, can I help you? I said, yeah, we're looking for a tire, but I don't know if you have anything that fits. He said, well, let's look at the front tire and see what size it is. So he looked at it and started sorting through. I got one here, this'll fit. And I said... How much do you want for it? The guy goes, $10, okay. I'm like, yeah, $10 is great. I said, now we need to get it mounted. And he said, well, there's a tire store in town. It's about three miles from here. Just drive. You'll see the sign. So we pulled in the tire store parking lot, and the parking lot is full. And I'm thinking, it's going to be forever before they get to us. So I went inside, talked to the guy, and explained the whole situation stretching it out, giving him this real sob story so he'd feel sorry for me. And he said, well, it'll be at least an hour before I can get to it. He said, there's a little restaurant over there you can go get something to eat or something to drink. Well, we didn't have money to get anything to eat, so we probably, I don't know, maybe shared one Coke between all of us. Went back after an hour, walked into the tire store, and the guy said, "Uh, took care of it for you. I even mounted it back on the van. I'm thinking, I was going to tell him, just put it on the rim. You know, I don't want to pay for you mounting it, too. He said, I didn't put the donut spare back in because, well, quite frankly, you got a lot of stuff in that van. So I said, how much do I owe you? And the guy said, "Uh, about $5. (laughs) So for $15, we had a tire that got us all the way to Lynchburg, Virginia, got us all the way back home, and we drove with that tire for the next year and a half. God exceedingly abundantly took care of it, even though I wasn't sure he would, even though I didn't have the faith that he would. He was testing our faith, testing my faith. God will always do that. He will always tap you on the shoulder, excuse me, to really believe all this stuff you say you believe, and then he'll give you a chance to prove it. Maybe you've been hit with some news recently that's scaring the daylights out of you. And you're wondering, is God still there? All my prayers seem to be bouncing off the ceiling, not getting any answers. Does he still care for me? Hmm. Remember what the Bible has to say about that? Wasn't there a verse about, oh yeah. First Peter 5 through 7, where Peter wrote, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Amen. You think maybe it's possible that when Jesus had this interaction with Philip, that Peter was paying attention and realized that Jesus cared for him, cared for the 5,000 people? Maybe you're going through a trial right now that's just overwhelming. We heard about a trial this morning that Matt shared. Can't imagine, just can't imagine losing both of your parents, 20-year-old girl, 17-year-old girl. Maybe your situation's not that grave, but it's bad. And you're saying, God, how can you do this I've been serving you faithfully for years. I have a quiet time every day. I'm even sharing my faith with people. I work at the church. I serve there. Why me, God? I'm walking in your ways. Why me? wonder what the Bible has to say about that. Somewhere there's a verse that says, Beloved, do not be surprised that the fiery trial, when it comes upon you, to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Who was it that wrote that verse? Peter did. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. You think Peter learned anything when he saw Jesus testing Philip's faith? Trust me. God will always test your faith. Whether your name's Philip or Carl or Matt or Sheila or Shelby or Anthony, whatever your name is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God's gonna test you. Back to Philip. <clears throat> this guy was skeptical, analytical, pessimistic, reluctant, unsure, and way too reasonable. How about you? Are you reasonable? So reasonable that you're afraid to take a risk for God? What if a major obstacle or issue presents itself in your life? How do you respond to it? Do you say, You know, I processed this, I've calculated this, there's no possible or reasonable way that God can solve this? Is that you? Well, if it is, I've got some good news for you. Phil's always asking us, do you want some good news? So I've got some good news for you. He, God, wants to use you. How do I know that? Because throughout the Bible, he uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. People like Philip, the reasonable one, Peter, the impulsive one, David, a shepherd. What's your qualification for being king? I've been a shepherd. Amos, a farmer who became a prophet. What do you know about prophecy, Amos? Oh, nothing, but I've been farming, growing some good crops. Elijah, a man who the book of James says was a man just like us. These people were nothing just like us. We made them into super saints because God accomplished some great things in their life because of who they were? Nope, because of who God is. Listen to this verse, these verses. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is Foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Isn't that talking about us? I don't know all of you, but based on what the scriptures say, Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of us are of noble birth. But guess what? God wants to use you, and he wants to use me. Why? To bring glory to his name so that none of us can boast. We're nothing without something, and that something is God. Would you stand, please? So let me ask this question. What about you? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, are you ready to answer God's call? Are you ready for him to test your faith? And maybe you're just like me. I go, oh yeah, I really am, Lord. (laughs) And God says... Let's just check. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, are you ready to do what Philip did? Are you ready to follow him? Are you ready as an ordinary person to have God do some extra ordinary things through you? Father, thank you that... We see in your word, you use using ordinary people time after time after time. And we've read about the great things that those ordinary people have done. And it's easy for us to think they did great things because they were great people. And not once was that true. They did great things because you're a great God. God, we are nothing without something, and that something is you. So we pray today that you would use us to accomplish great things, extraordinary things, so that you can get the glory. And if you're here and you need uh, someone to pray for you, You can come forward after the service and we'll have our prayer team up here. If you don't know Christ as Savior, you'd like to follow him, we'll help you with that as well. So Father, thanks for our time. In Jesus' name, amen.